This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, good. If you're brave enough to get back in here, we will plunge back in and I will pick up where I left off. And uh, during the, uh, the break, I had somebody asking me a very good question, and I think I should follow through on that since this is um, uh, a topic that is facing people everywhere in all kinds of places, and I want to, um, I want to do that. So we're going to go ahead and uh, shut our doors there, and uh, we're going to plunge right back into it. I'd like to ask uh, if you'd be so kind to bow your head with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we continue this subject, we pray that you will be our teacher and our helper in all things and that Jesus might be our real leader and our real teacher here. We want the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, the spirit of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let, I, I know that there are going to be people that will say, and let me come back to this whole uh, thing that we're facing where Paul talks about how this downward thing into this vile uh, terrible behavior where people become focused on their reproduct- reproductive as a way of finding out their origins and all those kinds of things. Um, but let me just focus for a moment on this, uh, this homosexual issue. By the way, I really appreciate the coming out group. We've had them at our camp meeting, and we're also having them at our ministerial meeting, and they've got it right. And they are an example. I was just talking to them last night. They are an example of the power of God uh, to change people's lives. I know that in some places, they, you know, the big thing is you can't change. People like this cannot change because it's part of their DNA. They're just made this way. And that's been the big lie that everybody has accepted, that people are just made this way. Well, I'm not going to argue the fact that there are people who have a predisposition toward this kind of behavior. And uh, in fact, I had one time some years ago because I was teaching seminary students their ninth quarter, their practice. And this person was doing research and he came to me and he said, and somebody gave me a heads up that he had kind of an agenda. And the course of the conversation, uh, he said, uh, so what should the church do as far as people who are homosexual? Um, And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, there are two choices. Either people repent and change or they have to leave. He got really angry. And that would probably make a lot of people angry today if they heard me say that. And he got really upset with me. And he says, what do you mean? He says, they can't help it. And my response was, so... I said, have you ever, have you ever seen a, a newborn baby that had a hot temper? Yes. Babies are not born all alike. They have all kinds of genes, and every one of you have genes, and you have predispositions to certain kinds of behavior. Some people have more weaknesses in some areas than other areas. It doesn't mean you have to behave that way. It just means that you have a predisposition towards it. One in ten people have a predisposition towards alcoholism. Should we say to people who have a predisposition towards alcoholism, bless your heart, you can't help it, 
So just drink yourself silly. And it's not wrong because you can't help it. Well, first of all, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So just because somebody has a predisposition to something doesn't mean that they can't overcome it by the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. That's the reason Paul, as I said earlier, would stand up to the entire human race, if you please, to all the wise people. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I would stand up for the whole homosexual community and the whole lesbian community and all of it. And I would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to change every one of you. I would stand up before the whole Hollywood crowd and the whole perverted sexual generation that's messed up that we live in, heterosexuals. And I would say the same thing to them. You can change. You can be transformed. You can overcome. Because we have the power of the gospel of Christ. So we have to understand this, this bigger picture here. It's not that we're trying to be mean, but this is the community of faith. A community that believes that God has the power to transform me into his image. And even though I'm born in an imperfect world and I'm, and I'm degenerate, we're all degenerate. Look at us. We're all dying. But I'm still not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the power of God to change us and transform us and to make us into new creatures by his power? All right, right in the back. Speak up good and loud. Greg. That's right. We can look at homosexuality, we can look at individuals who've been uh, found guilty of child molestation, and many times we want to sit here and put people in a box and say, well, they're not fixable. Right. Not realizing that in saying that we're not glorifying God as God, we put them in a box according to the old paradigm that we have established for ourselves. That's right. That's right. Amen. Well said. We, we serve a powerful, powerful God. Okay, I'm going to keep plunging in here because uh, I want to go right back to the text again if you have, uh, if you have your uh, guide that you're, you're following us here. If you look under uh, verse um, number 18, uh, we read verse, let's, look, first, let's read verse 26 and 27 if you don't mind doing that with me. Verse 26 and 27, for this reason, by the way, somebody during the break uh, was blessed here who asked me about why do people um, become fools, professing to be wise, become fools. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It's because they think they're smarter than God. Didn't Lucifer think he was smarter than God? He had the highest IQ of all created beings, and that led him to think he was smarter than God. And where did it lead him? Where will it lead him? It's going to lead him to eternal destruction, to the whole universe uh, looking at him and rejecting him, and his own followers rejecting him. In the final analysis, his own followers will not follow him. 
That's why I said that faith must trust two things. You remember what they were? The wisdom and the love of God. All right. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, even as their women exchanged the natural youth likewise. I think I've already read that. I want to go to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. Not talking just about homosexuals, talking about all sexual immorality. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, gossipers in other words, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy. Anybody want to live with an untrustworthy person? You like untrustworthy people? You want to do business with untrustworthy people? Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of what? We may not like the next word. Deserving of death. Why? How many of you want to go to heaven that's got that crowd? I don't want to go to that heaven. You think all the angels want that crowd in heaven? You think the, the people of the unfallen worlds that have never sinned, they want that crowd? They don't want that crowd. Wouldn't be heaven is right. Who knowing the unrighteous, uh, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I'm, uh, I'm going to skip down here and look, uh, look at number 20 in your guide. What one word can you think of that would describe that list I just read in verse 28 to 31? Sin. One three-letter word describes all of that horror that I just read. Number 20. Uh, no, I just gave you that. I'm going to read the note. Reading the, Paul's list of evildoers, most people, don't raise your hand, will be struck by the fact that something there applies to themselves. Does this list convict you of some sin? Because our own hearts are so depraved, Paul is endeavoring to help us to understand our great need. Think it through, going back to verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Each one of us must wrestle with what we're going to do with this verse. I must choose between trusting myself or trusting God. What about you? Are you willing to admit that you need the gospel? Are you unashamed to say with Paul, the gospel is the power of God for your own salvation. And that it has power to change you and to change me. That's the appeal. Okay, let's go to, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 2. Look at the introduction. Paul now turns from the Gentile world to the Jewish world. He shocks his Jewish readers by claiming they are no better than the Gentiles. Now you talk about a shocker. That is really a shocker. 
in that culture. The Jews claimed that the Gentiles were separated from God, but lack of faith had placed the Jews just as far away from heaven. And the Jews bore more, um, even more of the blame. They had a marvelous source of truth in the law and failed to take advantage of it. Because of their faithlessness, Paul declares that Jews had no right to judge or condemn Gentiles, for they were certainly just as guilty. The statement of Paul must have come as quite a shock to the Jewish mind. All right, let's plunge into chapter 2. And he switches right out of this. And you don't forget what he's switching out of. There are no, there are no uh, when he wrote the letter, there's no uh, dividers in the chapters. He just, this is a continuation. Okay, verse, verse 2, Therefore, because of what he just read, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, do what? Okay, the question for verse 1 is, what statement in this verse gives the reason why the Jew had no right to judge the Gentile? What's the reason? Same kind of behavior. All right? Now, leave your finger there and turn to me, to, with me to Matthew chapter 7. This is one you hear a lot. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1, if it will fall open for me here. All right, here we go. Jesus speaking, judge not that you be not judged. Verse 1, chapter 7, Matthew. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with the measure you shall use, it shall be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank that's from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, when is it all right to help a brother get the speck out of his eye? when you've repented. You can help somebody else based on your own repentance, but you can't help somebody else if you're unrepentant. Does that make sense? And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. All right, I'm going to skip down um, to verse uh, 4. Go back to Romans ran away from me here. All right. Let's go down to uh, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, the forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Why is it dangerous to take the goodness of God lightly? It is the only thing that leads us to repentance. So if I look at the goodness of God 
And I'd say, I don't, you know, I say, just take for granted every, all, every good thing that God has given me, and I'm unthankful, and I'm never glorifying God for it, then what I'm doing is I'm taking lightly the good things that God has put in my life. And as I, if I take lightly the good things that God is doing in my life, I am cutting off His ability to lead me to repentance where I need change. Following me? So it's by, it's by taking seriously the goodness of God and praising Him for His goodness that He leads me to further and deeper repentance. Yeah, there is a lot of cheap grace. People, what people want today is they want heaven and sin too. What people want today is the church and sinful indulgence together. What people want today is to be able to claim Jesus as their Savior and have His blessing on my sinful behavior. That's what they want. Every carnal human heart wants that. Who wants to be lost? But they want to be saved in their sins, not from their sins. All right, let's... um, Let's look, let's look again if you, uh, uh, let's look at verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's a good definition of the wrath of God. How does he, how does he define the wrath of God there? He defines it as the revelation of the judgments of God. Therefore, the wrath of God, it's fair to say, is the judicial anger of God. And I'll get more into God's judicial anger as I get on into um, a, a little later here. But what he's simply saying is that if you keep... What's hardness of heart? How about Pharaoh? We'll talk about Pharaoh if we get to chapter 9, which I hope we are able to do in chapter 10. What is hardness of heart? Hardness of heart is stubborn, it's refusing to believe, it's taking the um, arrogant attitude toward everything, you know, Pharaoh said, well, who's God? Oh, well, so what? So he turned the river to blood, you know. And, and finally, God had to get to, uh, to him by actually killing his firstborn. That's pretty, that's pretty stubborn, don't you think? It's pretty stubborn. Hardness. Hard-heartness is, uh, is the route to the unpardonable sin is really what it is. All right, let's look at verse uh, let's look at verse 6 and 7. Who will render this is talking about the day of the revealing of the righteous judgment of God. Uh, but what, one of the things that the Holy Spirit comes to do is to convict people of judgment to come. Why do we need to be convicted of judgment to come? Why do human beings need to be convicted of that? We need to understand that there is a day of judgment and that we will give an account for what we have done. And I'll tell you, if you got up on the street and preached that today, they would laugh in your face. They would say, there's no judgment. There's no accountability. God's not really, God is love. Excuse me, God is love. And uh, I mean, you'd hear from both directions. You'd hear, you'd hear the laughter from the atheists and the secularists and the evolutionists. And then from these Christians that don't know their Bible or really don't accept the Bible. So, oh, listen, God is love. He's never going to do anything like that. There's not going to be any day of judgment where you're going to have to give an accountability and there's going to be judicial anger. Are you a crazy old man? That's the world today. But the Apostle Paul is not crazy. 
Verse 6 says, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those, verse 8, who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, and tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does works that are good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. I want to ask a question, question and answer. Does God like good works? So why do we hear so many sermons? Oh, well, you're, you know, your good works aren't going to do you any good. Really? Faith without works is dead. Well, we'll get into that. I will tell you this. There's nothing that can save you but the Savior and your faith in Christ. I'll, I'll, I'll nail that down so tight it won't go anywhere. But I'm going to nail something else down. You cannot be born again without giving birth to good works. And that's the part that's not being nailed down today. What we've got today is justification without sanctification. I'll get into that. I'm not careful. I'll get into it right now. But I'll wait. Yes, I, speak up good and loud. So my, yeah, exactly. Okay, we're, we're getting, Paul's going to get deep into that part here, right, right here. But I want to get down here to, um, oh, I, yeah, this part's not in here. I want to give you this. And I got this from Ellen White. It's fantastic. Uh, my wife and I are reading the Lesson Helps on the book of James for worship. And um, this is my paraphrase, but it's pretty close. The law, that's a law now, the law of self-preservation, the law of self-preservation is, anybody want to finish it? The law of self-sacrifice. Let me do it again. I want to nail this down in my own heart, and I, I want it to be part, part of my life. The law of self-preservation is the law of self-sacrifice, and the law of self-destruction is the law of selfishness. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that the joy of heaven is going to be living in a society where people are not selfish. I, I, the golden streets will be there. I'm not taking a bit away one bit. The new Jerusalem will be there. All the glories will be there. The tree of life will be there and all the fruit. But the great joy of living in heaven is living with a God and a society and a community and a universe that thinks not of what they can do for themselves, but what they can do to bless somebody else. I'm telling you, that right there would solve every marriage problem in the world. Somebody should have said amen. What? It would solve every problem in the world. It really would, because 
you, you, wars would cease, everything would cease because everybody is bent on one thing and that's trying to be a blessing to somebody else. I live my life not for what I can get, but for what I can give. We need to tell young couples when they get married, you're getting married, husband, not for what you can get, but for what you can give. Wife, not for what you can get, but what you can give. Church, not for what you can get, but for what you can give. Because when you, when you come back to the heart, of the heart of God, God is an unselfish being. And all of us that will be saved in the kingdom will become unselfish creatures. The law of self-preservation is the law of self-sacrifice. And the law of self-destruction is selfishness. All right, back to... Um, and that's really what he's saying in those last couple of verses. If you read them closely, that's exactly what he's saying. Okay, speak up real nice and loud. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. True. Amen. Good comment. Thank you for sharing that. Let let me uh, let me move right uh, right along here. Looking now at verse. Uh, verse 11. Verse 11 is a fascinating verse. There is no partiality with God. What does that, what does that mean? That means as far as your character is concerned and your, and your person and your background, God has no partiality between Jew and Gentile. Isn't that good news for everybody if you come from a, either a Jewish or a Gentile background? God loves us all the same and His judgment is also going to be the same. Okay, we're going to get into something that's kind of interesting here. Look at verse 12. For as many have, have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. I'm looking for my... Okay, hang on just a second here. Turn the page. Okay, verse 12. Here are two groups of people. I'm looking at number 11 under Romans 2. Here are two groups of people who are represented. Who is the group without the law and who is the group that's under the law? Gentiles and Jews. Am I right? You're correct. Okay, verse, verse 12. Both groups have sin. Number 12, verse 12. Both groups have sin. What is the result of their, of their sinning? They both perish. So just because the Gentiles don't have the law like the Jews had it, they're still going to die. All right? And the Jews may have the law, but they're going to die. Why do they all die? Well, let's go see what the Apostle Paul has to say about that. Let's, uh, let's go on. Verse 13. Now, here we go. People, many people, I've got friends and they, whom I uh, appreciate, but they, they never read this verse. 
They read Romans, but they just read the parts of Romans they want. They don't read the whole book. Now here it is. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law that are justified. Ooh. Why is that so important? It's important for this very reason, and it comes back to the power of the gospel, and that is that God is not going to take anyone to heaven who is a disobedient to the law. He will only take people to heaven who are doers, obedient to the law. Why? Because if he does, if he takes a disobedient, we'll turn heaven into what this earth has become. He, he doesn't have any choice but to take obedient people into heaven. And the only way you get to be obedient is through the power of the gospel. Yes. Speak up loud. Now, if we have, if the only thing that we have to do is to get into heaven is follow the laws. I mean, that's simple. I mean, all you can, you can follow the laws but still hate God. Mm. So is that really all we have to do to get into heaven? No, you're so right. Just hang on. We're coming there. I saw your hand. I was it. Oh, you're just pointing to him. Okay. Yeah, it was a good, it's a good question, and he, he's, he's ahead of it here. We're not finished yet. But what's important is that we have to understand that the gospel has an objective, and the objective is to turn me from a disobedient son of God into a, an obedient son of God. That's the objective of the power of the gospel. Okay, we're going we're to hear that here. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15 who show the work of the law written where? Oh. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts and accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So he's, he's telling us here that if the, even though the Gentiles may not have the oral laws that the Jews had, they still have the law of God written in their hearts. I would like to suggest to you that the moral law of God, maybe not, every, maybe not the first four, but certainly the last six, are written in the heart of every human being that comes into the world. Because everybody knows the basic rule that if I do it to somebody else and it's done to me, then that's not so good. If I do something evil to somebody and that evil's done to me, I wouldn't want it done to me. So there's the basic underlying foundation of the, of the um, golden rule. People know intrinsically that they should not kill another human being. They should not steal from somebody. They know that intrinsically. And so what he's simply saying is that the Gentiles who know this and do it, God God uh, has some understanding for that. Okay, let's go on. Verse 17, and um, is that where I wanted to be? Yes, verse 17, I think. I didn't read the note earlier, but I'm not going to, uh, not going to worry about that. Let's go, let's go to verse 17 to 23. 
Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you are, yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form and knowledge of the truth in the law. You, Jew, therefore, who teach another, do, your, you, do you not teach yourself? Oh, now what's he say? That sounds like an oxymoron. If I am teaching what I know, am I not teaching myself? So what does he mean when he says, Jew, you know all of these things, and you're teaching others, why don't you teach yourself? What does he mean? He's going to explain what he means. Verse 21 you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles who say of you, as it is written, by the way, that reference comes from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, God was speaking through Ezekiel and he said to the Jews, you're your lewdness is so awful that you make the daughters of the Philistines blush. Why do you think the Jews teach the law and yet not obey the law? Why is right knowledge alone does not bring it into transformation? Okay, let me give you an illustration. Everybody in this room knows the Ten Commandments, am I right? If you don't, talk to me later. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. Am I right? Thou shalt not kill. And you can say, I haven't killed anybody. I'm obedient to the law. But have you ever hated anybody? Don't raise your hand. All human deeds proceed from somewhere. Everything has a cause and effect. So if I hate somebody in my heart and I would like to kill them, but I don't, I can't say that I'm keeping the law. All right? Now, I'd much rather, though, some people say, well, it's just as bad to hate somebody as it is to kill somebody. Some people say there are no degrees of sin. I will tell you this. There's no degree in the fact that all sin will cause your death. But there are degrees because of cause and effect. What would you rather have? Would you rather have somebody hate you or kill you? I'd rather have them hate me. I'd rather them not kill me. I'd rather them not hate me either. Because as long as they hate me, there's a danger they'll kill me. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me, let me just keep going down here. See your hand. I'll come there in a minute. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So I say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't touched a woman or a man that I ought not to have touched. 
but have you ever committed adultery in your mind and in your imagination? I'm, I'm giving you these illustrations. They're really coming right out of the teachings of Jesus, but you can go right down the Ten Commandments, each one of those. You can go right down the, and do the same thing, the lies, the whole bit, until you get to the Tenth Commandment. And what happens at the Tenth Commandment? It changes from behavior to the heart. And Jesus is saying, you shall not covet. And one of the things he mentions in there is a list of things. You should not covet your neighbor's. If, you fix, if number 10 takes root in your heart, it'll cure everything above it. Does that make sense? You're not going to steal something that you don't covet. Okay, all right. Back to when you were talking about the degrees of sin. Mm -hmm. I see it kind of as a lamp. I mean, if you unplug the lamp, the lamp is still off. If you take the core from the lamp and drag it 30 feet away from the outlet, it's still off. If you break the lamp, it's not going to work. It's still off. So yes, there's different causes and effects of it, but e either way you look at it, the lamp is still off. That's still death. That's right. All sin will cause you death. Every bit of it. Any of it. All right, now I think Paul's going to, he's going to punch down here, and we're going to see, we're going to see what, he, um, what he does. Is that time, that thing again? Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's see if we can, we can move along here. I, I really want to get into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of the clearest, chapter 3 and chapter 5, some of the clearest pictures of the, of the, uh, of the gospel. Yes? Yes. I think Speak up nice and loud so it gets on here. All right. I think that if, if we look at the commandments and all that we that Christ says that we ought to do, only if we look at it in the light of the cross can we desire to do it. And I think it's the desire to do it that motivates. And if it's a desire from the heart, that, that's where we're. Yeah, Apostle Paul would like your comment. Let's, let's watch where he goes with this because he's going to get into this issue of circumcision. Um, and let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at that. Okay, back to, the, back to the text. Verse 25. And I need to turn a page here. Some of this you're going to have to search on your own. Okay, verse 25. For circumcision, who was circumcised? In other words, were Gentiles circumcised or Jews? For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision will become uncircumcision. Verse 26. Therefore, if uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as what? So what's God really interested in here? He's interested in the righteous requirements of the law being fulfilled in my life. Whether I'm circumcised or uncircumcised, whether I'm Jew or Gentile, God wants, what does he want? The righteous requirements of the law carried out in my life. And the only way I'm going to get the righteous requirements of the law carried out in Jay Gallimore's life is for the gospel, the power of the gospel to take hold in my life. And that's where he's headed here. Now watch. Verse 27 
and will not physically uncircumcise and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even though you, with your written code and circumcision, you're a transgressor of the law. He's going to say, well, even if they're uncircumcised, but they follow the law of God in their heart, they're going to judge you. You have the law and you didn't follow it. Verse 28, powerful text. For he is not a Jew who is one outward nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the, coming back to the comment that was earlier, that of the the heart. What is the heart? When I say, I love you with all my heart, what do I mean by that? We use that word heart quite a bit, but it's really your affections. Moses got it right. What did Moses say? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus came out and affirmed it and said, on these two hang all the law and all the prophets. Why? Do I need to be circumcised in my heart? And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. I can hear them now. Oh, I told you we don't have to worry about the letter of the law. Question and answer. Is the letter and the spirit at war with each other? Or are they leagued together? Hang on, just two seconds. And circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. All right, you had a comment. Yeah, I was, uh, shall I speak a little bit louder? Yes, please, speak up real loud. at it as a sign to Abraham that these are going to be a sign that this is going to be your descendants. You know, they're all going to be circumcised. And Christ is saying that, you know, I um, can't remember exactly where it was, but paraphrasing that Abraham's children are those who who um, who uh, do the will of, of the Father. Yeah, good. Okay, let me talk about this word circumcision. What does it mean to be circumcised in your heart? Hang on for a second. Let me get into this because... I'm running out of time, and I, 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 I want to land here. Circumcision is not a very pleasant subject to talk about. We're going to talk about it because it's, it figures uh, large here. And uh, so, so what is circumcision, and how does that point forward to Calvary's cross? I don't care how you want to approach it, whether you're eight days old and you get circumcised or whether you're a grown man like Abraham was and you're circumcised. The fact is that it's painful, yes or no? Yeah, it's painful. No matter how you want to approach it, it's painful. What, what is happening here? And it's, it's performed, of course, on the male reproductive organ. And so what, what is going on here? What, what is the sign that God is giving here in this picture of, of circumcision? Well, 
here is what I think. God used this because to become born again is a painful process sometimes. It's painful in that this old carnal nature has to die. So in that pain, there is a, there's a, in the pain of repentance. So you cut the flesh off of that reproductive organ and there's pain and it reveals, if you please, in a sense, the life that is to come. And it points forward to Christ who on Calvary's cross became that flesh that was cut off in pain and suffering in order that he might reveal to the whole human race the very life that would come from God alone. So every Jewish woman, wife, who faced her husband, faced a circumcised man as an example that someday Christ himself would come and would become that which was cut off in pain and suffering so that we could be transformed and made into new creatures by the life of God. That's what this is about. There's no such thing as a gospel, the gospel without being born again, without a new life. And so that's why Paul in these last few verses is zooming in on something the Jewish person, the Jewish people understood because circumcision they knew set them apart as God's special people. And it pointed forward to that. Look, if you look down at my quote down there, the, the note on page 5 in uh, there under, well, I don't know if it's page 5, but it's under um, Romans chapter 2, verse 22. Note, the ritual of circumcision pointed forward to the cross of Christ. The scriptures teach that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Christ became the bloody flesh that was cut off at Calvary in order that you and I might have life. The reproductive organ on which this ritual circumcision was performed is a symbol of life. Unless we go to Calvary's cross and have the old man cut off with Christ, we shall never see the kingdom of heaven. The ritual of circumcision was a sign that the Jews were to be a born-again people. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And you cannot keep the commandments of God, I would add, without repentance. It's repentance that brings us face to face the cross of Christ. Now, I want to come back to this letter and the spirit. I want to come back under number 23, verse 29. Why does the true Jew who has been circumcised in his heart consider that the praise of God is far superior to the praise of men? That's a powerful text. Here's the note. I'm going to share it. All men, and I mean that in a generic sense, have the inclination to believe that if they perform perfectly... I want to get this nailed down good, I hope, before we close. 
All men have the inclination to believe that if they perform perfectly the letter of God's requirements, they somehow deserve His praise. Paul says that such letter performance is nothing but self-exaltation. In other words, such a person, whether Jew or Gentile, is seeking the praise of men. Paul says there is something far deeper involved. The law points us toward a change of heart. The spirit and the letter are not contradictory. What did I say? They're not contradictory. Because, let, me, let me say why. It is the heart of God, the spirit of God that gave us the Ten Commandments. It's the heart of God who gave us the letter. The letter comes from the heart of God. But what we have to have is the heart of God so that we appreciate the letter and desire the letter. Paul says there's something far deeper. The law points to a change of heart. The spirit and the letter are not contradictory. Because if the heart is full of God and His love, the letter of the law will naturally fall into place. But if the Spirit of God and His love are absent, no matter how well the letter is performed, it really never becomes part of the man's inner being. Therefore, God declares him to be unreconciled to himself. God, Jesus, loves you and wants your heart. He knows that if He has your heart, He has your affections. There's another better way to say it. If He has your affections, the letter performance will take care of itself. But let me tell you what we're struggling against nowadays. We're struggling against people that are saying, Oh, I love Jesus. I have the heart, but I don't need to worry about the letter. Let me tell you, if you really love Jesus with all your heart, you're going to welcome the Sabbath at sundown. Somebody should have said amen. You're not going to say to yourself, Well, I can kind of do what I want to do on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. No, if you have the heart of God and you have the heart of the love of Christ and you love the Lord, you will want the Sabbath to be a day of delight and joy. Amen. The letter will take care of itself if there's a genuine conversion. But when people stand up and say, I'm really converted. I, pray, I love Jesus. Jesus is great. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I'm not making fun, but I'm trying to drive home a point. But then they say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, the letter of the law, it doesn't really matter. They're not converted. Do not love God and despise His commandments. If you love the Lord, you will want to do what He's asked you to do. No matter what the cost why could Paul go through three shipwrecks if that's how many? I don't remember how many beatings he got. Twice in the great deep. Finally ended his life being beaten with rods and being beheaded. Why? Because the Apostle Paul learned on that Damascus road what it meant to be circumcised in his heart.
that in his heart, that carnal veil that had been hiding him from God, that carnal selfishness that had been obscuring his picture of God on the Damascus Road was cut. And all of a sudden, Paul's affections changed. His zeal didn't change. His earnestness didn't change. His passion for God did not change. But the old Paul was dead. And after Damascus, there was a new Paul. You may not have that experience on the Damascus Road, but you must have that experience. That the carnal nature in your heart must be circumcised. It must be cut off in order that Calvary's cross and its resurrection and all of its glory will be revealed in your life. Bow our heads. Father in heaven, we pray that for me, for all of us. As Paul said, I died daily. There's a daily crucifixion with Christ. A daily circumcision with Christ. A daily putting to death that old man that we can't put to death, but we can plead for the Holy Spirit, who's the divine executioner, to come and put it to death. The Lord, you don't leave us dead. You always resurrect us to that life of love, unselfish love and goodness that hates the sin but loves the sinner. May we be your people always, circumcised in heart. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.